Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. Today, I'd like to share with you an amazing conversation I had with Andre Dolnikov, the founder and CEO of Binyan Studios. Binyan Studios are industry leaders in the fields of architectural visualization and immersive digital experiences. Now, that might seem a little jargony if you're not from the development industry, but put very, very simply, the team at Binyan are the artists behind the stunning imagery and films that you experience when, for example, development projects are launched. You would often come in contact with their work if you visit a display suite of an upcoming development or over the internet and social media when projects are going through their marketing phase. Andre started as a one-man show in 2007 and has since grown Binyan into a practice of 85 that is internationally recognised and sought after for its artistic talent. Naturally, I wanted to find out from Andre how he started out and how he has shaped Binyan into the business it is today. He has got a captivating way of telling his story and conveying his thoughts on the building blocks of a successful business. I'm sure you'll agree. Before we get into the interview, there are a couple of things I also wanted to point out. The first is that the interview has been broken up into three parts. This is done simply to make the time commitment easier for you to manage. I know we're all a little time poor these days and I feel like 20 to 30 minutes is a good amount of time to stay focused while listening in. The second thing I wanted to point out is the audio quality. This episode was recorded over Zoom as Andre is based in Melbourne and I am based in Sydney. Normally my interviews are done in person, but in this case it was unavoidable for obvious reasons. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the audio. It's more that I'd like to set the expectation before you listen so you're prepared. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Andre Dolnikov. Andre, welcome and thanks for being with me today to uh, share your insights and experiences. Pleasure. So what I'd like to do first is set the scene for just putting some context around who you are and what Binyan Studios is and does. So we'll take it from the, I guess, from the very beginning, maybe your tertiary studies and then move into why you got into visualization, what made you want to start your business and what Binyan is doing today. So we'll take it from the early days. Yeah, the early days. So I studied design and then subsequently interior architecture at College of Fine Arts and then University of New South Wales in Sydney. I got into the visualization. I I was always interested in architecture and, and that side of design. Serendipitously, I took the last time that the 3D Max was taught at that time, maybe it's taught now again, but at that time they phased it out in favor of SketchUp. You're talking mid 2000s, early 2000s. So I took that course. Then I had to go to America, having been halfway through my degree. My wife and kids, we were living in the US, we already had two little kids. We were newly married, like 25. I didn't have a job or any idea, but she was waiting for US citizenship. So I like went and did a couple of months of study in Australia, went back there. 
Then I got a job. I had a, a visa that didn't allow me really working rights. I had like a, a rabbi visa, basically. So I could teach in a school. I could like preach, but yep. I couldn't. Do work. So I just basically had to go around, find anyone who give me a job for cash, basically. And so yep. I had three jobs at the same time. One working for this very old school architect who literally had a blueprint machine with like all the chemicals and everything. And another one that was quite similar and another one called Cadnetics. So Cadnetics in Pittsburgh was a company that was probably still is around. Oops, I guess I said it on the internet, but I'm not saying anything negative, but they, they basically outsourced CAD services for architects who still drew by hand at a little 3D department. And at the time, at one of these jobs, the client of this architect who was with the blueprint machine was also a, a rabbi who was building a new synagogue and he needed to do a fundraising capital campaign. And for that, he wanted to get some illustrations done of what this building will look like once it's built so he can go to donors to donate money. And my boss, Peter Brown, who was like 75 years old, he was like, I don't know, I'll sketch you something. And then I said, I can do some 3D renderings because I'd learned it in one semester. I was pretty rubbish at it. And he said, okay, do it. So I did it. And then that same client said, can you do some more for me on the side? And Peter was okay with it. So I did it. And then somehow, I don't know how I did this, but I realized basically I can probably, you know, get other people that are a bit better than me at actually doing the renderings and I can like work with the client. And I hired at the time, my manager at the other job. So at the job, my manager was a guy called Travis. He was like this middle of America. It's Pittsburgh. So, you know, the, the, the rust belt guy, Travis, like a buzz cut, big fella. And I'm like, Hey, Travis, I got this job. Can you make some renderings for me and I'll pay you X and I, you know, and I just did that. I know somehow I, I, this kind of business minded version of myself came out, which I never had before. My family's all academics and PhDs and scientists and typical Russian Jewish Soviet kind of, you know, background business is seen as a, as a vice, you know, in the Soviets, a criminal act to do, to do business. So there was still a bit of that. So I did that. Then I found like another couple of people who also were really good and I could work with the clients. I then, for a while, for the first two years while I was still in America, I was literally doing synagogues and other religious institutions as a specialist in renderings for fundraising campaigns. Then when I came back to Australia, I went back to finish my uni degree. And at the same time, I thought maybe I'll just approach some developers and architects, see if I can do this for them. And a friend of mine just told me, look, you got to go and be proactive. So I did. And that's the beginning. So I kind of fell into it very fortuitously because if I wasn't there in that one semester where that was being taught, I wouldn't have learned those skills. If I hadn't learned those skills, I wouldn't be able to do it for Peter Brown. If I didn't do it, then I wouldn't. It all had to happen perfectly sequentially. And if one of those pieces was missing, I guarantee you I wouldn't be doing this. Certainly wasn't any kind of grand plan on a napkin. You know, it was like... That's fascinating <laughs> because to think that it's just that one finite part of your life that actually sets it up for the rest is pretty incredible. I mean, it's the same kind of thing with, you know, marrying your wife or, you know, starting a family. All these things just fall into place. And, and yeah. then 20 years later, here you are. So you didn't necessarily start Binyan overseas. It was something that was formed while you're in Australia, as in like the... the Technically, I did. I actually started in Pittsburgh. But then, okay. but that, I mean, it was just me on my, in my one bedroom apartment. What was it? It was wherever I am, there it is. So I happened to be living in Pittsburgh. And then after two years, I came back to Australia. And if you, if you count from when I had my first office, which was a server closet, server rack closet that my friend in, in, that, that has an office in the city gave me to use for free on York Street, that was already in Sydney. 
That was when I first had an address. Before that, I actually put, put up the address as my apartment address on Old South Head Road in Sydney. And everybody who knew the area knew there's no office buildings there. Say Suite 9150 Old South Head Road. They're like, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't know there's an office building there. I'm like, yeah, people don't know about it. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's there. But let's have a coffee anyway. No, no need to come to my office. It's uh not me to the company. So, okay. So those are the early days. You know, you're, you begin very small. Has the classic startup sort of vibe where you're doing it in, in a tiny closet space. Did you have people here in Sydney when you came back that were doing the work with you? No, it was all myself. I found a few people remotely that I worked with in like other countries. I had funny, like, I don't know, again, I, I look back at some of these decisions I made. They seemed to be logical at the time, but they were a little bit, definitely a bit of, bit of chutzpah right from the start. It seems like cheeky things to do. So basically I saw this competition for uh, some sort of competition online for best 3D renderings. So I went and approached not the people doing the competition, but one of the judges. I'm like, well, if he's a judge, he must be good. He must be better than the guys doing the competition. Yeah. <laughs> and then he started working with me. So he was awesome. He actually had a little team in the beginning. that So we kind of worked together. But then while at uni, I, I hired, I had like too much work uh, somehow, relatively quickly, I guess. And I hired a couple of my co-students to work for me. Again, weird thing to do, but I yeah. did that. I'm like, well, you know. Can you help me out? I'll pay you something. A side gig. We were this by this time we were in we were in that server closet on York Street, and I had a couple of my co colleagues working while I was full time university, also working uh, part time as a rabbi and also on Centrelink. So this was a pretty like I was just I was going a million miles an hour. I remember I had our first big client was Lend. We got a job with Lend Lease. I don't know how some of my people might hear it, but it was one of our first jobs, let's just say. They, were, they put the trust in us. We delivered. Uh, you know, stories to tell there was quite fun. But yeah. I remember being in a lecture and, you know, the client's calling me up and I'm like, hi, um, yeah, I'm just going to, I need to step into a meeting. I'll call you back later, you know, and I was literally just taking notes at, at, at uni. So I didn't really have people here. Yeah. I, I, I kind of created it. So as you start, like you mentioned, you, you got busy quite early and you, you had a lot of projects going on from the very beginning. I guess moving forward, looking at from now in the last couple of years, what has Binyan grown into from your New South Head Road address to your server closet? What has it grown what into today? So today we have offices in Sydney and Melbourne in Australia. We had a bigger team in Brisbane. Now we just have a couple of people that there's no really an office there now, but we still have a lot of really, really great clients in Brisbane. So we have about 40 in Sydney, close to 30 in Melbourne. We have about 15 in New York and three people in London. So our team is about 80, 85 people or so across the, the various locations. And we're working, you know, our, we have this Google map that from our project management system feeds in all the addresses and it makes a map. And it's pretty cool. We haven't done anything in South America, but everywhere else we've done. So lots of work in Middle East, Asia. So half of it would probably be Australia and New Zealand. Then I would say the next 30% is North America, US and Canada, and another 20% UK slash Europe, and then Middle East and Asia. So, and it fluctuates depending on seasonality and years where there's more or less, but we're like working everywhere. Maybe that's something that we can touch on as we get into having the, the global presence, you know, part of, part of this conversation. Yep. I just want to come back to, I guess, some of the advantages of being in a, in a global setting, but we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later on. But just on the fact that you've got so many projects 
across you know continents now. Can you give us a bit of a, a snapshot of what some of those interesting projects are for you guys, and you know what's really sort of lighting you guys up at the moment in terms of what you're working on? So, the sort of things we're working on in Australia. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sirius building in Sydney. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, you know that one. So I've just done a few images for that. But that's an absolutely unique project, both in terms of its site and views to the Sydney Opera House and the brutalist architecture. And they're not knocking it down. It's a refurb. So it's, mm. for those that don't know, look it up, Sirius, but it's spelled slightly different to like the word Sirius. But it's very concrete. It was community housing at the start, but it's got this incredible location and now it's being repurposed to, you know, this iconic kind of development and going to be a landmark project. Very unique that it's that old meets new. In Brisbane, we're working on a couple of projects with Aria, who are really, you know, upmarket developer in Brisbane. And they typically use, you know, they use like Koichi Takada, Bates Smart, some really good architecture firms. And they're quite organic. One of the buildings was actually posted by Sir David Edinburgh. One of our renders yesterday was posted on his Facebook. He didn't credit us. So David, if you're listening, if you listen to Harry's podcast at Binyan Studios, mate. So we're trying to get, get, get a hold of his press people to make sure they credit us properly because that's literally going to be seen by millions. It's this kind of vertical garden, very cool looking building. That's very, very exciting. Yeah. Some much more boutique type projects in, in, in Melbourne, for example, this one called Monument, which is all about materiality and connection of, you know, architecture and landscape at very like more handcrafted scale. Very beautiful. The tallest tower in Brooklyn on DeKalb Street or Avenue, but it's it's going to be literally, it's, it's going to tower over this particular part of its amazing project in New York, in London, like Chelsea Barracks, which is, we're doing the penthouse, which is going to be some of the most expensive real estate in the world. And it had three different interior designers design the same spaces. And we're doing renders of the same seven or eight spaces, but in three different, completely different fit outs and look and feels to convey to their potential buyers, like, hey, you can do anything your imagination desires. Yeah, some pretty epic projects in Canada, Los Angeles, near where the Clippers Stadium is, doing two unbelievable projects. One in Asia, some of them are a bit confidential, so I can't share, but like one is one of the most, going to be the highest price point apartment. Another one's a, a mega project, which we did like an immersion room for. I don't know, I could go on and on. And we're doing a job in, in Brussels, also a similar to that serious building, a modernist architecture classic that's been a little bit, not neglected, but it's kind of aged. But now they're refreshing it and it's going to be this an icon in Brussels. So all that. So just on these projects, is it purely a visualization exercise or are you more sort of heavily involved in the advisory side of things? I guess I'd just give a bit of a context to that question. So I recently read an article in the Urban Developer, which had you quoted as saying that the way that Binyan's developed, you know, you're providing the visualization, but you're also getting more and more involved in the advisory side of projects. Uh, and am I right in saying it's in the launch phase? Are you doing that more and more now with these very high profile projects? You know, it used to be that there was like a shopping list, particularly in Australia. It was always like, we need, you know, three exteriors, five interiors or more and a set of steak knives. And like it was a very standard order that would come through. But then when every project has exactly the same thing and when it's the market is not as easy to sell in or to lease commercial space in or to lease retail, you know, or hotel, all the other sectors, our clients tend to think, OK, what can we do differently? How do we get the audience's attention the same way when the first batch of photo reel renderings came out? I don't know six, seven, eight years ago, and then through to the last few years, 
everyone's like, oh my God, I, you know, I can't believe it's no butter. And that would get a wow. But now it's like, yeah, I've seen that. Great. What's next? So our clients come to us and say, we want to do something cool. We want to do something that's going to attract attention. We're going to do something that's going to connect with our clients. So we're thinking about our clients' clients. You know what I mean? Yep, Not yep. just like developer, architect, what do you need? It's more like, what does your audience need? And that is a lot more of an open question. You typically still need to do renderings slash CGI slash artist impressions. But then it's animation, of course, social media content, immersive content. Then when we move into the sales center, how are they going to encounter your product when it's online advertising? Should it be an image of a living room showing the product or does it need to be something a lot more evocative and memorable, like a car commercial that you know shows you something about the brand? So more brand focused imagery at that, we're a really cool project, come check us out phase. Then once they're there in the sales center, how do you give them the most memorable brand experience possible? So by the time they actually arrive at like, hmm, let me see which kitchen type I want to take, they already have gone through a whole customer journey that has got them to understand not only the meat and potatoes of the product, but what it means to live there. So really taking a leaf out of the way so many other products are marketed like cars, like luxury brand, like, you know, so our role is to help the client work through that process around what is the content we should be creating at the various touch points to get you the business outcome you're looking for. It's not always renders. It is usually in the mix, but sometimes it's a small portion of the overall. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you've become much more about the brand rather than just the what you want the product to hopefully look like. I mean, that's that's so much more involved. Than, yeah. Um, Obviously, we work very close with, with the branding agency. So typically, we're not the ones coming up with like the name, but how to interpret the brand, the, the graphic design, the name, the, you know, the colors, whatever that has been developed on the brand side, how to interpret that in terms of immersive content. And I use that word very broadly. Like a bathroom rendering needs to evoke a certain mood that will still immerse the viewer in the image. It needs to make them feel something. It's like, you know, like Don Draper on, on, on Mad Men, yeah. you know? It's, it's all about nostalgia and it's all about a feeling of you're okay. Yeah. All that stuff. I, I, that's very important. The image needs to do something. The computers do a lot these days. So they get it looking pretty photo real. The artist's intervention is to move the audience in, in some small way. And that can be the, as basic as a bathroom render to a literally surround sound like what we just done. Anyway, I'll get into it probably later, but like for Mervac for Green Square, it's literally like a sales center extravaganza of like cool technology, you know, projection mapping, sensor movement, blah, 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 all, all sorts of really cool stuff. And But that's still the same theme. Like it still needs to provide some sort of emotive connection. Yeah. And I guess just on those points that we've just raised, is that, I guess, where the marketing of development projects is heading? Because, I mean, like you said, the photorealistic renders are now sort of five years. And I mean, when you look at your work, I mean, it's all perfect. And it has been like that for a really long time. So putting aside the obvious, I don't know if you'd call it gimmicky things about, you know, AR and VR, is there an advance in how an image looks or is it more now it's gone beyond that marble looks like marble, but it's more how you can almost fall into the image and be absolutely certain that this is the kind of place that you want to end up? I mean, is that where marketing is heading these days? Well, firstly, I sometimes sound like, oh, 
photoreal that's so still extremely difficult to achieve and that's why still very few really do it well i'm not saying we're the best whatever but you know we always strive to be the best i use sports metaphor a lot in the way i think about business for whatever reason and and motivate myself like you can't win the league every year but you want to be in the finals you know in the playoffs you want to be in the conversation so some years absolutely other years like and we have our four teams, you know, the photo reel is still the foundation of it. But I guess the, where I feel it's moving, just like, let's say, in the beginning of television, what was television? It was videoing theater. So, yeah. so it's all about getting it. Oh, look, it moves now and I can watch it in a cinema as opposed to having to be there. So it was very much. So, so that's also like a bit of a phase that. The archivist industry, it's still hard to do, but I think it's something that is now ready to go to the next step. So can we make what we see in front of us look realistic? The answer is yes, if you know how to do it, and it takes a lot of skill and experience, but you can do it. The next question is, again, using the television slash movies metaphor, is how can you make what you are showing through the technique of photorealism more and more interesting, right? That could be yeah. simply through, we used to have fly-throughs, which is literally like a handy cam, dorky, zooming around the space fly-through. We stopped calling them fly-throughs purposely. We call them films. Now films, it's a bit uppity, but we want the client to understand, to think about it more like a TV commercial for a cool product, like a Super Bowl ad. You know, you're not expecting from a Super Bowl ad to tell you, well, here's what my product looks like from four angles. Like, obviously, it's not going to do that. It's going to do something catchy and interesting, memorable. Then you take that into, so you're still using the techniques of photorealism or, or not. <laughs> you might say, I don't want it to be photoreal. I want it to look illustrative. I want it to look conceptual. And then it's about, do I just want my viewer to see it on a little rectangle? Do I want them to be surrounded by it? Do I want it to be in a headset? Do I want them to be able to interact with it? Do I want it to be a more of a, like we're building you know, apps as well these days. And there it's, a, it's, it's really great because we don't have like an off the shelf approach to it. It's more, much more bespoke. What are the needs? What are the key points of the project? And so some of it might be an interactive kind of, you click, it explodes, you get to see different like 360 hotspots and you navigate your way through it. At this certain point, a really cool like little mini film will play. So you're still using the same tools, except you're now making the experience a lot richer. So I don't know if it's another like step. I, I do definitely think technology is still moving. Of course, it's moving forward. But what's going to happen, I feel, for example, some of the, you know, that they say, you know, you like the sausage, but you, you, sometimes you don't want to see how the sausage is made. So the sausage is made still in a pretty inelegant way, if you think about it in some ways. There's this thing called the render farm, which is a bunch of computers, and they huff and puff, and you have to spend millions of dollars on them. And it's just so much complexity around making that image look that good that I think those complexities will fall away over the years ahead. So it'll become a lot more intuitive process. Again, using the metaphor of photography, going from all the different lenses and then development in the darkroom and do all the retouching, which would take three weeks. And now you can do it in 20 minutes. Mm. It'll, but the artistry is the same artistry. And if anything, the idea is if you don't have to do some of those more boring things, it should open up more time to do more creative. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, so yeah, so still, yeah, the technology has a has a huge focus, but you might take away some of the more mundane processes and then yeah. focus on the artistry, which is where the talent lies. Yeah. If your product is a commoditized product, I think it's a you know a bit of business advice to anybody. If what you do is a bit of a commodity in terms of like anyone else can do it, then it's always going to be come down to price. And then you, you, it's just a race to the bottom. Whereas a company like ours, we have to be striving for what can we do with our minds that's 
going to be, I don't say priceless, but it's not a commodity. It's like our creativity. That's what we're selling. Yes, we happen to be able to put it to use creating this sort of asset, but it's really what happens up here that makes a difference as to why a client should appoint us or somebody else. This is the end of the first part of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Andre's business journey so far. Coming up will be the second part of the episode where Andre talks about business guidance, business culture, developing trust, and why he decided to go global. See you soon.